Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. As you see from Current Power Record Studio right here in New York. And I am blessed to bring this week two giants in the music industry. You know how I always love the Paradise Garage and I always talk about the, the more soulful side. Now we're going to go to the other side, more we should call it the wider side, the high energy side, the more commercial style side of the business of disco and dance music. Two of these people I revere very highly. Uh, Robbie Leslie plays on Sirius XM every week for years. God bless him. He's, he's got a great residency on there and he keeps the Saint name going strong and Studio 54 with his shows. So God bless him on that. And Marsha Stern, a giant, herself, record promoter. She worked in lighting, still works in lighting, design lighting, worked for Light Lab. The people that you see in Sinai Fever in that disco movie where you see the guy moving the sliders. If you ever watch in a DJ booth, there's a little Light Lab controller, okay? And the guy is next to, I forget his name right now. I can't think of his name anyway. DJ, the guy's moving a little light lamp. Looks like looks like a mixer, but it's not a mixer. And you see the spinning lights? She worked for this company that helped design that, okay? And she came into the business as an artist herself and, and then became a record promoter and worked, got a wonderful job at studio, but she'll tell you all that great stuff. But anyway, enough of me talking. i like to introduce Robbie Leslie and Marsha. Hi, Lenny. <laughs> Thank you guys, girls. Hey, God bless. They made it. We had a little bit of a hiccup, a little delay. As you see, Robbie's in the car. He'll tell you in a minute. Hey, Robbie, how are you? I know you just got the shot. Are you okay? I'm so far so good. Uh, I'm in the holding area after my shot to see if there are any adverse reactions before I actually drive out onto 95 to go home, which is a good idea. Absolutely. So I'm all for it. Uh, it was quite a long wait. I expected I would be home safe and, and comfortable in my office and talking to you on my iMac. But, uh, you know, DJs have to be very resilient and very, <laughs> you know, able to, to change direction in an instant. So this is just part of our lifestyle, I think. Hang on. So if I gave you a pair of Thorns TD-125s floating with rubber bands right now, you'd be fine, <laughs> basically, right? Well, I wouldn't be happy, but I'd be fine. Yeah, you get through it, right? I, oh, absolutely. The the party is what matters, man. That's exactly right. Marsha, come, right. come on up. I'm going to interject a little anecdote here. Roy always used to carry extra rubber bands in his bag when he worked at studio for that very reason. <laughs> Same with Larry Levan at the garage through the night. The record. Did they have to? They'd have to pull the platter off to change the belts. Hated it. Wow. Hated wow. It. <laughs> but again, we welcome you both, and everybody in the UK is coming in all over the world. And oh, let's see. This is what we do, everyone. We start with the same question. I'll let you, one of you, pick it, but you'll both answer it each on your own. How does music find both of you at a young age? Where does it begin? Who wants to take it first? Go ahead, Ladies Bobby. first. Oh. Ladies first. Okay, Marsha. All right. 
I would say music found me as a direct result of my mother at a very, very, very young age. Some of my earliest memories, five, six, seven years old, were going to the Young People's Opera down here in Miami. Um, and my mother's best friend actually was an opera singer. So I was also backstage at a very early age. And I remember by the time I was in, I guess, second or third grade, I was taking piano lessons. Um, and, and so music you know, has always been a, a big part of my life. Uh, my aspirations when I moved to New York had nothing to do with lighting and everything to do with music. As songwriter, producer, I was a percussionist uh, for the most part. And that's how music found me, my mommy. Who was Viennese from Vienna, both of my parents. So Vienna being a very musical city as well. Oh, yeah. Wow. Bobby? Uh, okay, I've been thinking about it since March has been talking. Uh, one thing I remember is that as a very young child, probably about, I'm going to say four or five years old, and I remember my mother telling me that she wrote songs for, well, there are th three brothers in my family, uh, that she wrote songs for all of us, and I remember one day she brought home a 45 record, uh, and it was um, I Want to Be Bobby's Girl. I don't know if you remember that song. It was, it was kind of a pop radio song. Um, I'm not going to sing it for you right now, but she, she told me that she wrote that song for me, and I remember also that she said she wrote the song Michael, Row Your Boat Ashore for my older brother Michael. Now, of course... <laughs> This was all just, you know, fic total fiction. But as a child, I guess this, this was like entertain us or make us feel special or something like that. Uh, because, you know, we wouldn't have the wherewithal to look at the writing credits or anything like that. But uh, I that is a very early, real early childhood memory. And I can say that um, I lived and grew up in a pretty unmusical house. Um, the radio was never on. The hi-fi, they weren't playing records in, at, at all. And my my initial exposure to music, I, I think, started when I got my first car. So that would be that would be in high school, the middle of high school, and the radio was on constantly. And I, I gravitated very quickly to like Motown and uh, R and B music. And I was a huge fan of Aretha Franklin. I remember, and in fact, she was the first artist I ever saw live in concert in Boston. Um, so it was. Um, it was a big gap of, of no music. And then suddenly I just went in and, you know, I dove in. Uh, and ever since, it's been just nonstop. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because I've, I've seen also that you constantly put up really nice photos of your family and, and things that are kind of like nostalgic with movies and stuff at times. Oh, yeah. I, I'm very lucky. My father was a real shutterbug and he had, he had very good equipment. And... Um, I have a lot of wonderful pictures uh, from my childhood and, and my teenage years. And uh, so I'm very lucky. And another thing I forgot to mention is my parents, uh, they always had season tickets to like the symphony and uh, the grand opera in Florida when we were down in Florida for the winters. And um, my father never wanted to go. So I was by default, I was would usually accompany my mother to the symphony and whatnot. And uh, I think that gave me a lot of familiarity with, um, that kind of music and orchestration. In other words, it wasn't strictly, wasn't strictly like pop music and dance music. Uh, so uh, that, that sort of fleshed out, I think, my taste for for 
when disco really was big and it was fully orchestrated and had like amazing arrangements, uh, I already kind of had an awareness of that how to build that kind of sound. So you're talking now, this is like early 70s, very early 70s, right? Correct. Late 60s and early 70s. Yeah, right. Right. No talk about okay. DJing yet, right? This is no talk about any kind of DJing or anything like that. None whatsoever. In fact, uh, I never had really aspirations. Um, I mean, I, I used to go to the clubs as soon as I was legal. I would go out. Um, but I had no fascination with the DJ. I loved I love the music, um, and I really gravitated to like the, you know, Norman Harris, uh, Philly Sound, all that, all this stuff that was coming out in the early seventies, the Three Degrees and the Tramps, uh, and all the little, you know, indie labels, uh, Executive Suite, some of those fantastic songs. Um, and it wasn't until I was hired to work um, on Fire Island as a waiter which was a very weird experience. I, I waited on the parents of the owner of the club in Florida, and they were so taken by my my waiting skills. They told their son, they said, you've got to hire this guy for your for your restaurant. So it, it turned out that he did. And uh, I started working at the Sandpiper on Fire Island, which was a, a restaurant and then a disco later on at, in the evenings. And um, uh, I just... I just absorbed the music, but had no interest in getting in the booth. And it wasn't until uh, about, I think, 1977 that uh, I asked if I could, like, sort of, like, dabble in it off season. And they said, uh, sure, we will pay you because, you know, you're not a professional and you might lose us money. Uh, people might leave the club, but uh, go ahead. It's not going to be that crowded. So it's not that much of a gamble. But that's how I got into it. And it was such an instantaneous, like a, like a heroin fix. It was like from the very first uh, experience in the booth and, and that kind of visceral reaction with the floor, with the dance floor. Uh, I was instantly hooked. When you're talking about Sandpiper, right? In Fire Island, who was the DJ that was there when you were right before you started? Do you remember? Right. That, well, that's, that's an amazing thing. That club has a, a pedigree or, you know, a reputation far as the people that work there um it started out with tom moulton uh playing tapes there and it was a very weird uh thing that it happened he was submitting a tape down the street to uh to a place called the blue whale and um the guy said you know sorry not interested and he was waiting for the ferry back to the mainland and my boss uh, had struck up a conversation with him and said why why do you look so glum and he explained the situation and so as it turned out he handed the tape to uh, my boss and said, well, you know, check it out. Apparently, it was, you know, because they had a jukebox at that time. And uh, apparently it made such a huge hit that my boss called Tom in the middle of the night at like 2 or 3 in the morning. Exactly. And he said. 4 a.m. Oh, it's 4 in the morning. Okay. Morning. And he said, I've got, to, I've got to get more of this, of what you're doing. You've got to, you know, you've got to provide as many as you can. and." Uh, they had a relationship, you know, like a musical uh, buying buying tapes from Tom. He never actually spun live, but uh, he was the first person, I guess you could say, that that played like a nonstop mix uh, in, in the in that club. And uh, at that point, uh, it was very very fresh, very new, and you know, like 
the DJ as a as a tastemaker was still a very new thing, uh, even in Greater New York. And um, so after Tom, they hired DJs like Richie Rivera, um, Howard Merritt, uh, Alan Dodd, um, Larry Sanders, Tom Savarese, uh, just just the best of the best from Manhattan because they were so you know nearby. And uh, so all this time that these guys are playing, I'm I'm like absorbing all their wonderful music and their amazing taste and how they put it all together. So that was kind of like my, what would you call it? My schooling was uh, being in their in their illustrious company. Your apprenticeship. Yes, perfect. In my apprenticeship, exactly. Oh, and I left out Roy Thode, who of course was he was like the king of Cherry Grove, which was right next door. And um, so on my off nights, I would go down there to hear him spin. Oh wow! And on his really? off nights, he used to come up to the Sandpiper. <laughs> With me, that was our Monday night date night, and we would listen to Robbie as he was growing as a DJ, and Roy would always very impressed with your growth as a DJ, Mr. L. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And the funny thing is, you know, like, I only found out about this kind of uh, after after the fact, and uh, it's, always been, it's always been a wonderful thing to realize that, you know, he didn't make a big fuss about his being there, you know, like, here I am, you know. I'm uh, supporting you or anything like that. It was just very quiet and very discreet, and which made it made it all the more sweet because he was, you know, that's the kind of person he was. He was very supportive, but he was didn't want to impose his his presence or his stardom onto my, you know, my dance floor. We always used to go sit at those bay windows right at the harbor with our back right. to the harbor, <laughs> and literally in sure. the dark in the corner, and just for hours and listen and listen and listen. Wow. Amazing. I love that. And maybe say hello on the way out or nice night right. or thank you on the way out. But that was pretty much it. Right. Remember right. the little room you lived in upstairs at the Sandpiper? Oh, yeah. My little dormitory room. Yeah. Nice. Right above the dance floor, actually, it was. Indeed. Yes. How many nights a week were you playing at the Sandpiper? How many nights a week? During that time? Uh, I, I worked um, the weekdays. Uh, the, the, the name DJs worked Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I believe Sunday. And then I would work Monday through Thursday. And the great thing is because, as I said, Roy was like the king of Cherry Grove. And everybody back then went to went to the Ice Palace to dance on, on Saturday nights. And so, um, consequently, the Pines was like a ghost town. It was deserted. And um, so I had Saturday night off. I had a summer job. Think of this. A uh, summer job. And I was able to like um, have Saturday nights off and do whatever I wanted. So I'd either go to the Ice Palace with everyone else, or I would take the Long Island Railroad into the city, and I'd go to 12 West or uh, Golly, that, that was probably my favorite club, or down Christopher Street. Uh, and here are the DJ. I think it was Jim Burgess back at that at that time uh, playing. So I mean, you know, I had the most choice job ever. I got to spin and I got to go on Saturday night. <laughs> what more could you ask for? <laughs> you played on the nights that most people are working and you're off on a night when, when you can go into Saturday night into New York and go dance at 12 West and listen. Tom, I was exactly. Tom Savarese as well. And, and um, playing at 12 West at that time, right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. In fact, I think, yes, he was doing double duty at the, at the, at the time. He was doing the Sandpiper and 12 West at the same time. Yeah. Wow. 
Ms. I know, Star- right? Yep. Miss Stern, so you went, how do we find ourselves coming to New York? What brings you into New York to start? How did that happen? What? Can you, and why? Um, yeah. I actually was going to continue my musical education. I, I, I kind of had a little bit of a lapse in going off to the University of Florida and, and looking at a profession that my parents thought was good, but it really didn't, you know, pull at my heartstrings. And I found myself back in Miami, uh, North Miami, after a couple of years, living in Miami Lakes, actually, at the time, um, had taken some music classes at Miami Dade Junior College, met this really cool guy, Stan Webb, who was teaching me songwriting. And I was uh, taking percussion lessons with a guy named, um, oh God, Frank Garisto. And Frank was teaching a class at Dade. And he had moved down here from (coughs) New York, retired from his profession. And for a time, he was the drummer for The Tonight Show when it was Jack Parr's Tonight Show in New York City. So he had quite the pedigree and he was loads of fun, taught me tons of stuff, still have books from him. And uh, at a point, I decided that like Miami just didn't have enough. I mean, there was TK Records here. That was pretty much it. Um, So short story is I decided to move to New York because the pickings, the pool seemed to be larger with record companies. And uh, after about five or six months, my first jobs in the medical profession, because that's where my schooling was. But um, then I got a job doing production and making and doing radio jingles. And then I got a job as a publicist with the Howard Bloom organization. And that was in a building uh, in Manhattan at 65 East 55th Street. And Howard Bloom was on the fifth floor. And on the sixth floor was TK Records. And on the fourth floor was Can't Stop Productions. And the Howard Bloom organization did press for, among other artists we know and love, we had Buddha clients. So we did Melba Moore, her Buddha record. We did Phyllis Hyman, who was on Buddha at the time, pre-Arista. We worked for TK, I guess the first disco group that I really did publicity for was the Ritchie family. Um, We also had uh, ZZ Top as our client, London Records, Um, made friends there with Bob Small, who was with London at the time. Um, also Ray Caviano's twin brother, Bob, yep. who was a booker. He shared one of the offices that was in our floor on the fifth floor. Um, and some of those relationships I, I have to this day, one of my best friends to this day is Mark Bego, who is a writer who we met at that first job back in 1977. <laughs> and I kind of stopped with the music playing and stopped with the songwriting, but I did ultimately reach my goal of production when I started working with Joe Long on the Midnight Rhythm. Yep. Uh, and also the productions we did for Parachute and Casablanca Records is the Joe Long Sound. And prior to that, I did promotion. So while Robbie was having his uh, DJing ingenues in Fire Island in the late 70s, I was pushing records for Ariola Records. I was pushing records for, uh, you know, Can't Stop and doing other production efforts before I got into actually music production. So, so I thought it was pretty choice that, you know, to have a summer job that let me do the club circuit. On thir- Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, I do 
the garage and 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 12 west on friday night saturday morning hop on a seaplane go to fire island do the promotion bit on fire island all all the clubs out there and as robbie said the cherry grove was saturday night friday night the pines was red hot sunday the pines was red hot tea dance red hot so you know i had my records and i did my bit there had a few artists perform out there i think we did deborah washington at the ice palace at one point and uh and that kind of segued into lighting and i'm not exactly sure how that happened but it did right around 1980 and then before i asked you the question about the segue into lighting when you say work the records, so people that, that are green that don't understand what that means, ah. what ex- the job title really, because I know what you mean, but explain. Well, well, what we would do, obviously, the record label had artists that they wanted to promote. I'll give you an example. Deborah Washington, she was a new artist. We were breaking her um, and we needed to get her music out there and get her known. So my job as the East Coast disco person was to be a liaison to the record pools to the DJs who worked in the clubs to either bring them the record or make sure when they got it in the record pool, they knew who Deborah was. Um, we set up a little bit of a mini tour where she went to a couple of clubs. I remember we did a live show with her at the Ice Palace 57. We did uh, a thing at, at Judy's for the record, record pool. And um, we would get the records out there in the clubs. I was not a radio promoter. I was a club promoter, so my my liaisons were with the club DJs, and 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 they in turn were kind of changing the music industry back in the '70s, as you guys know, because radio was the way that the Hot 100 was tracked, that the sales were charted, that the entire music business ran, and all of a sudden disco came into the mix, and you had DJs playing records that they were given as promotional copies. And people going to the stores to buy in massive quantities, artists like Saturday Night Fever, Bee Gees, or or, uh, Donna Summer, or Giorgio Moroder, and all of a sudden record sales were off the charts and they weren't on the radio. And it really messed up the recording industry because they didn't know what to do with us. They know where to put you. Yeah, that's what happened. All of a sudden, you can have a record that would work in the clubs and do a quarter million sales from a record never heard on radio, just a record played in New York, in New York alone, no less. Probably case in point, uh, the gold record behind me, it was given to Roy for Sylvester, his album, Step by Step, I think it was, or Step Step 2 was the name of the LP. And, you know, that was something that really didn't exactly get a lot of pop airplay. I'll pull that Maybe uh, on the disco stations, which... It didn't come about until the 80s, really. In the 70s, it was WBLS, so you had good hardcore R&B. Right. Incred- I, I, I'm showing them, I don't know if they could see the gold record completely. I don't know. I think the resolution might be too big on those. Yeah, uh, right. I'm sorry. That's I, okay. I should have sent him his pings, PNGs, instead of JPEGs. That's all right. I tried. That goal, you know, it's kind of interesting what, what disco did. It sort of did turn the music industry on its ear from the traditional sense of record sales, charting, radio stations, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, you got a WKTU disco station that emerged because of that. Um, I think that those things are kind of forgotten a little bit. Yep. And there he is right behind you, Roy. That nice picture. 
yeah. right above. Can you pull that picture and show everybody? I sure can. Thank you. Look at that awesome picture Roy thought I'm everybody. Bring it a little closer. Wow. He left us so young. He did. He did. And, um, you know, I certainly, you never know when things happen, how they're going to affect you. And you always think, oh, this is, you know, the best friend or the closest X, Y, and Z or whatever. And I must say, what, 40 years later, almost 39 years later, he really was one of the closest, most special, most endearing relationships I ever had in my life. It was just a shame that it was so short. I can't imagine what it would have turned into had he lived past 1982. Yeah. You know, we, we, we were so solid. Um, but I was very fortunate and I was given much of his legacy. I was given much of, of Roy's uh, uh, master reels. I've got tons of reels, which I've been digitizing and putting together. Um, uh, a few of them have been broadcast on Robbie's show at Sirius, and a few of them I've done as <laughs> my own specials or specials with Robbie that yes. were dedicated to Roy. Um, we've done a few of those. We did a few performances together out on Fire Island uh, that we also did a live broadcast. One of them was fun. It was Robbie and Roy play together uh, for the very first time, and it was, uh, I guess, let's just say a five-hour tea dance or whatever, and I had one of the performances of Royce from the Ice Palace, Cherry Grove. And we would play an hour of his performance. And then Rob, it would mix, Robbie would mix from that into him playing live and then segue into another portion that was, you know, hour three. So the momentum of the music, the flow of the tea dance remained the way we wanted it. It wasn't choppy and Robbie would be the connecting the live connectivity between the two pre-recorded segments. It was really such a wonderful, wonderful tea dance. And, you know, um, it was so joyous to see the crowd reaction in, what, 2015 or 16? Yes. To Roy's segments that was just as vibrant and viable as the crowd reaction when it was live in 1979 or 80. Wow. It's amazing that he recorded that stuff. It's great that he did. That he-, he did. You know, I think I, I think that be, be beyond saying I have tapes or people would want to buy tapes or give people tapes as presents, he recorded them because he used that as an effect. And if you ever listen to Roy's music, he does some wild echo and reverb effects. And all of them are created by taming the delay from the reel-to-reel deck. Right the outputs um and that's why the tapes were recorded because they were used and then from those you ended up with a catalog of them some tapes as i've gone through they say one thing and they're fine and la-di-da and 30 minutes into it it cuts and it breaks into something else and i know he just took a tape and recorded over it who knows what it really is that's what made the magic of playing in those days like that you did things on the fly you know, you just, that's just what it was. But let's go back to you now. So you're doing promotions and running around from New York to Fire Island, all these places. Where does, where's the step that you walk into Clubland begin for you? Like, where does that all, those moves? Where I walk into Clubland, I suppose I probably entered Clubland when I started doing 
um, PR publicity and Clubland in Manhattan, as you well know, overlaps not only into going out at night to a specific club, but for those of us that are in the biz and me specifically, there were press parties, there were premieres, there were releases, there was all kinds of stuff. I mean, I remember Mark and I used to joke that we would eat caviar and lobster every night of the week because we were going out to various events and parties every night of the week. It was really quite amazing. Um, you know, the, the 20, I, I think at the time I was 23 years old, not even 23. I moved to New York at, just before I was turned 22. So I'm not even 23 years old going to parties and frou-frou events every night and eating like crazy, drinking champagne. And, and, and it was just surreal. It was absolutely surreal. So that also very easily led to, Oh, let's go to studio after, or, Oh, let's go to club X, Y, and Z. Um, I think by the time I actually started working in a club per se, um, I used to, push lights and run lights at a little club down in the village that had the most amazing DJ Roger place called a roster place called the ring or cock ring, depending on what year you were around. Mm -hmm. Um, and Howard Merritt, I believe regularly played there on Tuesday nights and maybe, uh, Wayne Scott did on, on Mondays and Richie Rivera on Wednesdays and Phil Alexia. I mean, some of the biggest names, this was their weekday gig and it was the cutest little club and the cutest little DJ booth. And during the week I would go in there and run lights. Um, usually for about 30 bucks and all the booze that I could drink because the manager was awesome. And, and Frank, you know, hired me to do lights, but the most unique thing about that club and the lighting, uh, there was there was a typewriter, an Olivetti typewriter. If you remember what an old-fashioned typewriter key looked like, where you sure. hit the button and the little hammer would go up. Yep. And Tommy Kazalka, who was the lighting guy at the club, he had converted that typewriter into being a, literally a lighting console. Really? So when you hit certain keys it hit relays that would turn on various pin spots around the room, lighting various elements in the room, whether it was, you know, a series of various lights on the mirror ball. And you could then also quite literally almost play the piano to the lights. And I am convinced that it is that little invention of his that led to Light Lab adding the four push buttons on their Light Lab LP4000 controller that was just faders Right. And then the one that they came out with in like 2000 added four push buttons at the bottom. Wow. So that was really the first the first time I got paid to run lights and the first real I say professional gig of mine was at New York New York. And before that, um I mean I was at studio all the time. Was he played there on Thursdays? And also, the Francois Kevorkian play at that time too at New York, New York. Yes, and but, at Bonds. Right. Um, yes, I mean, you know, I mean, I was at studio all the time, but I was there with Roy, and Roy worked there two nights a week, um, just like I was at Lamouche a lot. Uh, Kevin Burke worked there. Wayne worked there. Sharon White worked there. Right. Uh, Ice Palace Fifty Seven again. Uh, you know, being at the clubs, that was part of my job promoting records was to see to it that the DJs 
played my records and that I gave them good records. And part of that, as you know, is the relationship between the DJ and the record promoter. But here's the question. Yeah. You are musically gifted, of course. So understanding how to work lights and knowing the music is very key to working a, to being a great light person. You know that. Thank you. I think it helps immensely. Um, I've tried I, to explain it to people over the years. They don't understand this. They don't get it. How important that you know the moves to make to know what a DJ is going to do because you know musically what needs to be done. So your mind is thinking, how can I make the excitement even greater? That's key. Well, that and the way that happens, at least for me, is I can visualize almost an orchestral score where you might have a myriad of instruments that are picking up different notes. So if I'm doing lights to a song, as much as I'm trying to convey the mood, I'm also trying to pick pieces and parts of the song musically that I can enhance visually. And maybe the dancer will be aware of, you know, a small percussion piece or a flute that they would not have necessarily heard in the mix otherwise. Um, actually, funny that, that you say that, and, and it's true. One of probably the highest compliment I ever got ever, and the one that is the closest to my heart. Uh, I had the pleasure of actually doing lights for Roy once. Oh, really? Okay. And it was at the Saint. Uh, I sent you that schedule uh, in yes. my two, two large pictures. Yeah, the picture of the in Saint. In any case, that, uh, that was the only time I have ever actually officially worked for him and did lights for him. While I was with him, most nights when he worked at various places, it was as a friend, a companion, and someone helping more on the musical end. It wasn't as a lighting op person. In any case... The Saint gig was was really super amazing. And um, uh, there were some points when I could have sworn he was actually mixing to what I, the rhythms I was creating with the lighting. And at one point he walked over to me and he said, I just want you to know, I've never seen my music before until tonight. And I've never received such a high compliment from any musician. And I consider Roy a musician, um, even though he put together pre-recorded music. Um, he was an artist. And I never received as high a compliment for my lighting work as for the musician to tell me that they could see their music. Wow. That is a high compliment. That is a very big compliment. First of all, that that room, that lighting system in the Saint is, oh God, the planetarium. It was, fun. There. It was a lot of fun. It, it, there was a lot of light lab equipment at the Saint. It was fun. And the star machine was particularly amusing because you had, um, I've never flown an airplane, but I can imagine if you're flying an airplane, you're dealing with latitude and longitude and axes and all of these other things. And that's exactly what was on that controller. It was all about, you know, minutes and degrees and latitude and hemispheres. And it was very scientific. Wow. Did you have, you helped put that, did you put the saint, did you do the installation all with the saints lighting? Actually, I didn't do the installation of the lighting at the Saint. I did, after the Saint was open, work for Peter Spar and helped to maintain the sound system. Peter designed and installed the sound system at the Saint. And, and 
I used to work for Entertech, uh, but I and and I used to help Mark out occasionally, but I had nothing to do with the lighting. That was all Mr. Ackerman, Mark Ackerman, um, who I'm very blessed was a mentor of mine, uh, very much so. Um, it was his design for the lighting, and Charles Durrell was the artistic designer uh, overall and did um, all the fabulous parties. Let's also give her some credit too, because she's at Light Lab. And she told me off camera, she was involved with the installation at Paradise Garage, the ring lights. you got to tell us that, too, because I'm leading her right to that as well now. Go ahead, girl. Tell us. It was, it was before the Saints had opened. Um, I don't remember the exact year. I think it might have either been 79 into 80 or right. 80. I was working for Light Lab. I already knew Chris Harms, who was a lighting designer, who actually had won the award I have behind me of... Uh, Lumen Award for Ice Palace 57 and Chris worked with Light Lab and I was working in Light Lab and I knew the guys at the garage, of course. And Joe Zamor uh, was heading the crew and the design that put up the rings. So on the first weekend, it was a regular Friday night, a regular Saturday night. We came into work fresh and early on Sunday morning. And all of the lights had to be taken down and set up and made neat and cleaned and fixed and blah, 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 blah. And it was at that time that I learned to put an Edison plug on. What is an Edison plug? Well, you know that plug that you plug a light into the wall with? It's called an Edison plug. And I didn't know either. And I was given a task to clean and put the plugs on these new fixtures that were going to be replacing the old ones. And I said, if you tell me what it is and show me how to do it, I'll be more than happy to. And they did. And there I sat putting up like 800 plugs on all the gazillions of lights. And during that week, we was our clean and prep and take everything down week. The following weekend, the garage was open and there was not a light in the place, save like four sconces that were built into the brick wall and the emergency lights, the exit lights. Everyone who came in got a hard hat and a flashlight and the crowd was the light show. <laughs> and it was a fabulous weekend. And we came back again on Sunday morning and we proceeded to now put up the rings that the new light show was hanging off of and hang everything and mount everything. And the following Friday, when the club opened, we debuted the new lighting system. And that was the first installation I did. Uh, that was the beginning of, I guess, my by being officially a lighting technician. Light woman, light technician. Wait a minute. So those that know the garage and Larry's booth, he had that, he had that second controller right above his turntables that he can pull and start working the lights. I don't think I've ever seen at any other club except that club. Because Larry liked to be able to, you know, have his thing and do it his way. And if he didn't necessarily like what the light guy was doing, he had a kill switch and he could do his own thing, which um, honestly, there were many DJs. I remember when Robbie worked at the Sandpiper, there wasn't a light person at the Sandpiper either. Um, you know, you had you made the hits yourself. You hit the lights when you wanted to do hits. And, you know, Larry, knowing what he wanted in that room. And everybody literally giving themselves up to Larry's trip. If you went to the garage, you were just, you trusted, you were, you put yourself in his hands completely. And if he felt like a blackout was what he wanted at that point in time, he damn the lighting person. He hit kill switch. That was it. It was a blackout. 
And you remember Chip Bullock? Yes, I do. Do you know that Chip is living in New Delhi, India? Really? Yeah, we're still in touch. He is working, you know, the Uber fantastic, fantastic weddings and the over-the-top events that happen in that part of the world. Um, he's got a huge events business. He sent me some some videos and some shots from some of the events he's done that are just amazing. Um, huge, huge. So he's, yeah, after Katrina, he went there and he's doing really, really well. I love that I'm still in touch with him too. It's amazing. Some of these, you know, you wonder what happened to some of these people over the years because they, you know, not that they disappeared. They just went into different businesses. Different things happened. Disco. Well, you know, you know, I don't know. Unfortunately, a lot of people did disappear. And a lot yeah, of we know that as well. Afraid to ask of what happened to so-and-so, you know, and, and yeah, a lot of people do go into a different sidestep. I mean, I had encountered Chip maybe 10 years after the disco world when he was working in Austin, Texas for high-end systems. So, yeah, we kind of sidestep and pivot a little bit, I guess. Not like we've had to pivot with this silly pandemic, though. That's a real pivot. Oh, that's a whole different thing. So, yeah. you know... So, you know, I mean, that was kind of the beginning of of doing installations. And, and then shortly after that, I was asked to do my first lighting design. And so I used people that I knew from that world, both Garage and Light Lab, and did my first design out on Fire Island in 1981. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Yes. What was involved? So you did it, did you do it as your own subcontract as yourself, or you were still working for someone and designing it? No, I, it was me. Tom Kazalka from the, from the ring, from the cock ring was hired to be the technical director and put the lights in the first year they opened, which was the summer of 1980. Okay. And I was approached by the owners in the fall and they asked me to be the tech director for next year. And I said, I next summer. And I said, I'd love to. And they said, by the way, um, all the lighting equipment was rented. So you need to design some lights also. And I thought about it and I called my mentors, Mark Ackerman and Chip Bullock. And I said, Hey guys, what do you think? Can I do this? And they said, yeah, sure. And Chip said, sure, I'll help you along. And Mark bought me a book that was how to read a blueprint. <laughs> and I called up Larry again, Larry Lavorni. I said, yep, I'll do it. Jesus. Wow. So and that was my first permanent job. installation in, uh, in anything. Wow. Talk about learning on the job training. I mean, this is like, this is no, like you went to school, became electrical engineer. You just yeah. learn on this, on the job. Here's your electric, here's your Thomas Edison plug. Here's your Edison plug. Here's I, it, this. It, here's it, your... really, it really was, you know, I mean, I'm grateful that I had the aptitude to pick up on it and then, you know, the gumption to run with it once I, I had something under my belt. But I think that the biggest thing that I've found that's the biggest asset in not, not just disco, um, but, and, and maybe more that time, maybe not, I don't know, but certainly there was a lot of sharing, at least between the DJs. It was all about, it wasn't as competitive against each other. It was working together to bring the crowd the best. I know in my own experience, if I ask someone, 
how to do something I didn't know how to do, generally they would show me and they would tell me and they could mentor me. And I found that there was a lot of that in the entertainment aspect, whether it's through live events um, or whether it was in the disco world or when I started working in the technical world, which is a little theater, a little off Broadway, a little, you know, just whatever. Um, and there was always someone to show you and someone to mentor you. Um, someone to, in later years, lead you to the software that could show you how to draft on your own or whatever. Right. And that's the key, you know, is keeping this art going. That's a big part of it, you know, because a lot of it I find, and we talk about this amongst the DJs now, is that that some of it's a lost art. The club owner that spent that money to put that Richard Long or Gray Bar sound system in, say, and to get someone like yourself to come in and design a, a theatrical true lighting system. That's so far and few between now. They're worried about putting bar lights in and put a $5 stereo in the club. It's crazy. It's It drives me insane. All of us say it. It's like... There's a term we use in the architectural world that we all have to abide by and nobody is particularly fond of it. And it's a phase in the design process called value engineering or the VE phase. And the VE phase is what takes maybe that really cool centerpiece of the room and it whittles it down to a few little down spots or something. Right, right. Um, and, and that's a lot of what you're, what you're describing, Lenny. And, and, Conversely, there are a lot of places that are still spending a lot of money in design. I think a lot of what's cool and, and cutting edge has also changed a lot as technology has grown. Um, you know, as you see the way architecture has embraced a lot of theatrical technology, a lot of video, a lot of stuff that I did back in the 90s that opened the door so that this could happen. You know, you might have a place like a, a, a big hotel downtown, like a Fountain Blue that is redoing right. and they're spending a ton of money in their club. Uh, lighting designer by the name of Steve Lieberman, who before that had done a lot of ultra events. You know, he was commissioned to do the lighting design at the big club they built at the Fountain Blue. I forget the name of it a few years ago. Right. Um, so there you do have examples. Well, of people going over the top. But for every one of those, there's probably 20 of the value engineered little clubs and bars where they're getting what I call nothing wrong with them. I just call them silly disco effects, but they're effective. It's true. Where you can put up one or two things that do a cute little whatever, and, and there's your, your your show lighting. And instead of doing it for, you know, 3.2 million, you've done it for 56,000. Right. Right, exactly. So everybody's always intrigued by 